in this series, Live Like Jesus. In the first sermon, we, we explored that invitation of Jesus, come follow me, and the impact that that made on Peter, as well as Andrew, James, and John. In the second sermon, we, we talked about the invitation of Jesus to refresh the soul and drink this living water that would cause us never to thirst again. And we saw the impact that it made on the Samaritan woman that he met at Jacob's well. In the remainder of this sermon series, uh, we are going to take a look at six different words. And these words will flow out of John chapter 17. The other day, Sean commented that reading John 17 is like listening to a family conversation between the father and the son. It's true. It's a beautiful passage. And we are the benefactors of this heartfelt prayer of Jesus. But the comment made me wonder, what if the world could listen in to a conversation in our homes? What would they hear? What would they learn? How many of you have an Alexa? or an echo or, or something like that. You talk to Alexa and ask questions. All right, you, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Uh, we do, and I'm always, I'm always just a little leery that she's listening to everything I say. I, I may be a little paranoid, but there's times I think I hear her chuckle um, <laughs> without us even talking to her. D don't you wonder sometimes with all this device, who might be listening? I read just the other day, for those who don't want Alexa listening in to your family conversations, Amazon is going to make a male version. It won't listen to anything. <laughs> but it does raise the question. It does raise the question. What would people learn about Jesus if they could listen in on a conversation in our homes? Here is a truth worth remembering. Living like Jesus demands that we live like him when no one is listening and when no one is watching. Because I'm convinced that if you only do it, if you only live like him when people are watching and listening, it doesn't really count. It has to be sincere, even when you're alone with the Lord. Each of these next six sermons will revolve around a single word, a single word, a single theme. And together, these six words will provide us with different aspects or facets on the life of Christ. And as importantly, what it means for us to live like him 24-7. Now, I mentioned these are going to flow out of John 17. And you may be thinking, huh, how much can you learn with six words? I mean, how much can be done what can you do with just six words? Have you ever read about or heard uh, any of these six-word memoirs? Uh, it, it was, it was a, an exercise that started a long time ago where you'd take six words and you'd tell some significant aspect of your story. Perhaps the most famous is attributed to author Ernest Hemingway. As the story goes, he won a $10 bet that he could write a moving story in only six words. Here's the result. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. Man, those are six words that tug at your heart. It is amazing what can be com communicated in just six words words. And I know some of you are hoping, is this a sermon in six words? <laughs> you know better than that. Don't even ask. <laughs> Here's a few more of the examples of six-word memoirs. 
out of everyone, I chose you. I never believed this would happen. Talking without action is just complaining. Each year, balder than the last. (laughs) Sounded much better in my head, and perhaps my favorite, saved by grace, free at last. A lot can be communicated in a few words. So let's learn how we can better live like Jesus and help others live like Jesus by taking a look at these major concepts, each of these words. And the first word in this rest of the series is this, reveal. John 17, 6, Jesus said, he's speaking to the Father, he's praying, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Jesus said, Father, I've done what you've asked me to do. I have revealed you to my followers and to the world. Here's the setting. Jesus and the disciples were in the upper room. They'd celebrated the Passover meal, and they'd celebrated the Lord's Supper for the very first time ever. Jesus talked about a lot of things, including life after death. The disciples asked a lot of questions. Jesus answered a lot of questions, and then launched into this prayer for his disciples. And in this prayer, Jesus said that he prayed not just for the disciples, but for all who would believe in their message or in their preaching. Folks, that's us. In John 17, Jesus is praying for us. In a matter of only hours, he would be crucified. So this prayer is focused on what really matters. It's the prayer of a dying man for those who would someday learn to live like him. So what do we see revealed in Jesus about the Father? How do his words and actions give us insight into the heart of God? When Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, what did he mean? How do we interpret that? Well, obviously, since we have no clue as to the physical appearance of Jesus, we know that he is not talking about a visual similarity, all kinds of Artists have depicted Jesus in some form or fashion, but we don't know what he looked like. That's not his point. When he said, if you've seen me, the scene in that reference is a, is a picture of actions and behavior. In what they saw him do, in how he reacted to life circumstances, in what he said, in the miracles he performed, Jesus gave us a glimpse into the very heart and the mind of God. So what is it that we can conclude about God from a picture of Jesus, from a look at the life of Jesus? Well, there's a whole lot. (laughs) There's there's too much to go into right now. But just let me give you a synopsis. God is loving. He's gracious and merciful. He's not swayed by humanistic philosophies, prejudicial judgments, or sleazy gossip. He looks past social class systems and sees the individual. He shows no favoritism. He is amazed at great demonstrations of faith in the human race. He has power over the elements in his creation so that even the winds and the waves obey him. He's uncompromising with the truth, but is gentle in its application. He cannot tolerate sin. He judges, but he's not judgmental, as we understand the word. He has high expectations. Sincere commitment is demanded. 
He is eager to forgive in the face of genuine repentance and godly sorrow. He loves people more than anything else in all of his creation, and he invites us to spend eternity with him. What's more, he willingly planned and paid for that invitation with the life of his son, Jesus Christ. All of that, we learn about God through Jesus Christ. And when people quip that they love Jesus of the New Testament, but they don't like God of the Old Testament, they don't understand what they're saying. Nothing could be more contradictory. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus alone reveals the heart of God to us. So, if we're going to live like Jesus, and if we're going to help others live like Jesus, then we need to reveal him to this world through our words and actions, deeds, and lives. So in in order to understand what it means to reveal him, I'm going to focus in on two words. Just going to leave you with two words today for you to chew on and, and examine in your own life. How do these words apply to me? Okay, and the first one is simply this, deflection. (laughs) deflection. Revealing Jesus in my life begins with my ability to deflect. And you think that is an odd place to begin. Oh, but it is so true. Let, Let me explain what I mean. Take a look at John the Baptist. I want to, I want to take you to a unique moment and his example that teaches us what deflection means. The setting is the uh, area of the Jordan River near Anan because there was plenty of water there and John was baptizing there. And Jesus was also baptizing folks in that area and that's what created the rub with John the Baptist's disciples. They come to John and they ask him and uh, the Gospel of John records it in chapter 3. It says, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Do you pick up the attitude here of what's going on? It's like they're saying, they want to say to Jesus, hey, wait a minute, mister. Baptism is our gig and this is our part of the river. You're horning in on our territory and our ministry and we're not happy about it, Jesus. They may be feeling a bit defensive. They're defending John for sure. I think they're defending themselves. They're they're feeling uh, left out of the picture suddenly because it seems that Jesus was drawing more attention than John and it had always been just the opposite. What we often forget is that Jesus and John shared a unique relationship. John was not just a close friend to Jesus. He was a cousin and a spiritual soulmate. John was a good man, a preacher of the truth, and a significant part of God's plan to bring salvation to the land of Judea and ultimately to the rest of the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus had this to say about John in Matthew eleven eleven: I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Wow, do you, do you realize what a statement that is? When you look at all of the Bible characters and some of them with great leadership capacity for Jesus to say, no one has been born that is greater than John the Baptist. That's a bold statement. And later when John was beheaded, 
I think Jesus felt more alone in this world than ever before. I think it was a harbinger of his own approaching crucifixion because John was a man whose purpose God had ordained and whose birth God had miraculously provided to the aging Elizabeth and Zechariah. John was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that Elijah would come and lead the way for the Messiah. And very much in the spirit of the prophet Elijah, John prepared the way for Jesus. He did it splendidly. But his response to this inquiry by his own disciples, this complaint by his own disciples, is simply amazing. John 3, verse 27. John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Oh, I am so impressed with John's attitude. He was not threatened at all by the growing popularity of Jesus. And incidentally, he is the very first to introduce us to the concept of Jesus being the eternal groom and his people, the church, being the bride of Christ. He understood his role, that of just the bride, the, the, the best man. Now, in, in weddings today, the best man stands by the groom, holds the ring, and tries to look handsome. That's the only thing that the best man does uh, in, in a wedding. But then, back then, the bride never knew when the groom was going to be coming to receive her. She, she knew sort of the time period, but the groom was always trying to catch the bride napping or, or, or asleep. And it was the role of the best man to lead the procession through the town to announce the coming of the groom. Here he comes. Make ready for the wedding feast. Brides and bridesmaids, get yourselves ready. He's on his way. Now, understanding that makes John's analogy a little bit more understandable. John said, I've been the bridegroom, and I've been happy to do that. The groom has come. It's time for me to step out of the way. But let's face it. John is still a human being, and that's hard. Here's what we love about John. He was willing to play second fiddle. Now, you know where that illustration comes from. In the orchestra, the person who plays first violin is considered the best and gets to carry the melody line. So, playing second fiddle carries this meaning. To be less important or to be in a weaker position than someone else. Playing second fiddle isn't easy. You're just one step less than the best. And the one who's in first chair gets all the attention, gets all the accolades, gets all the notoriety. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, violinist just lucky to have a job is just thrilled to be in the orchestra. But when you're second chair, when you're playing second fiddle, just that much out of first chair, that's tough. Here's something that's even tougher. It's when you've been first chair, and now you're second chair. It's when you've had the notoriety, and you've been reduced to second fiddle. No one played second fiddle better than John. But here's what we know about playing second fiddle, folks. If you do it well, if you do it well, you get to create the harmony. The music soars. 
John deflected the praise and the attention away from himself and always pointed others to Jesus. John, yes, got to play the harmony to the melody of Jesus. And when John chimed in, the music of Jesus simply soared. Now, if we're going to live like Jesus and disciple others to live like Jesus, we always have to deflect the attention away from us and keep the focus on Jesus. In a world so bent on achievement and knocking others out of our path on our way to the top, Jesus challenges us to be humble and play second fiddle to the best of our ability. You see, the world is accustomed to seeing people scratching and clawing for power and control. Just turn on the news and watch, and you'll see no matter where they are, there are people who are vying for that number one role. But Jesus has always challenged his disciples to take a more winsome approach. Matthew 23, verse 11, the greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves, why, they will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, why, they will be exalted. The apostles and the early Christians picked up on that expectation, and it became a hallmark of the ancient church. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And our Lord's brother James reminds us in these words, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Translated, church, when you're out in the world, Play second fiddle, but play it well so that Jesus gets all the attention. You've got the harmony line. Play it with all your heart. Following the bitter winter of 1777 and 1778, the Continental troops departed Valley Forge, that horrible winter at Valley Forge, to face the British troops. The first battle came at Monmouth Courthouse. The Continental Army was in retreat from the battle lines before Washington even made it to the front. But General Washington rallied the troops, rallied the army. The Continentals went back to the front of the line and through that entire day, it was the longest single day battle of the Revolutionary War. During that time uh, at Monmouth Courthouse, Washington stayed on his horse, even though the horse stumbled several times. Cannonballs hit so close to him that the mud from them splashed up into his face. He never flinched, he never faltered. He stood there and rallied the troops. There, there is no doubt that Washington was the leader of this dynamic group. And without his presence, the battle surely would have been lost. It became the turning point in the revolution. The British fled the field. The Continentals held the ground. Tom Clavin in his book, Valley Forge, wrote this. He said, it is no exaggeration to state that wherever Washington made his stand on the bloody field, so stood the American Revolution. Officers and infantry alike recording the event in their journals over and over again could not praise their commander-in-chief enough. Washington was the man of the hour. But when George Washington penned his battle report to Congress, he never even mentioned himself. Not once. 
He gave all of the praise, all of the glory to his officers and to his infantry. Never mentioned himself. That, folks, is leadership. That is deflection. St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, It is no great thing to be humble when you are brought low, but to be humble when you are praised is a great and rare attainment. It is that kind of deflection that draws others to Christ. Here's the second word, reflection. <laughs> Easy to remember, deflection and reflection. Reflection is the second principle at work in learning how to reveal. There, now, there's two kinds of light. There is created light and there is reflected light. It's the difference between the sun and the moon. The sun creates light. The moon reflects light. Now, obviously, the light of the sun is more valuable than the light of the moon. But the moonlight is not insignificant. You see, reflected light has a power and a purpose of its own. Reflectors are important. Reflective tape on running shoes help us spot runners at night when the light is dim. Reflectors on bikes and cars and reflectors embedded in the road help save lives. Reflectors in flashlights focus the light so it can be directed where you want. You take that silver part out of the flashlight and the bulb loses its power in the darkness. It just kind of gets swallowed up. But the reflector, <laughs> that's what makes the flashlight usable. Without a reflector, a flashlight is worthless. Reflected light is used to create better portrait photography. Reflectors are used in telescopes to help explore the universe. I think of the light above the dental chair as a great example of reflected light. If it were direct light, it'd blind you. You couldn't sit there. You'd, I mean, even with your eyes closed, it'd be too bright. But it's a reflected light, a diffused light that brings clarity to what is happening in the chair. We seldom reflect on the importance of reflected light. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A, a light on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp or light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, let me ask you, is that a created light or is that a reflected light? It's a reflected light. We're not the creators of the light. We're a reflection of the light of the world himself. When people see us living like Jesus, they'll be drawn to him. And in him, their lives will be forever changed. And so our challenge is to serve as reflectors to direct the light of Jesus into the dark corners of this world and into the lives that do not know him. And by the way, without you, without you, some people may never see the light of the world. As a reflector and a flashlight concentrates and focuses the light in the right direction, so we live in such a way as to concentrate and focus his light in the right direction. And like the light above a dental chair, we want to live in such a way that we illuminate the truth without blinding people to the truth. Too harsh, and we can cause people to have to look away from Jesus. Too soft, and they won't be able to see him in the dim light. It's a balancing act to get the light just right. It's what Paul meant when he wrote to the church and said, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth, but do it in love. It's a balancing act. Reflected light even brings new growth, folks. 
This, this, this is pretty good. Uh, my, my grandpa used to take the harvested potatoes and put them in a dark, cool corner of the barn, and, and they would last there for a long time. I read about another farmer who did the very same thing, went back to his potatoes stored in the barn, and lo and behold, found there was a certain spot where the potatoes were sprouting. Couldn't figure it out. It was dark in that corner. Uh, It was not even near a window in the barn. And the more he studied, he finally discovered one afternoon that there was an old copper kettle, still shiny, hanging from a rafter just down the way in the barn that was picking up the light from the other side of the barn and at the right moment would reflect a beam of light into the potatoes that were stored in the barn. And sure enough, where that light reflected off the copper kettle shined, the potatoes were sprouting. Even reflected light brings growth. We are here to help people grow in their faith. We can help make disciples by reflecting the light of the world into the faithless dark corners. Even reflected light brings growth. So let me ask you, what are you doing to intentionally be a reflection of him in your home, in your workplace, in your school, and in your neighborhood? Do your friends and family see him reflected in your actions? Do they hear him reflected in your words? Folks, that's been the whole point of our 3D initiative over the last couple of years. Remember the 3Ds? Develop friendships, discover their stories, and then discern how, what God wants you to do in the next step. That's where we get our one life. How are you doing with your one life? Are you being a reflection of Jesus to your one life? Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered what would happen if we stopped reflecting Jesus? Who would see him if it were not for us? I hope you're doing well with your one life. Keep it up. Start developing friendships and start discovering their stories and start discerning what God wants you to do as you are a reflection of the light of the world to a dark corner. Have you ever wondered why white is used exclusively in the book of Revelation to depict the robes that we will wear when we're in heaven? Uh, I mean, why white? Green's my favorite color. Why not green robes? And dark colors are slimming. I mean, that would help if we got dark robes in heaven. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of reasons, including the picture of clean, sin-free, purified souls. But I wonder. (laughs) I wonder if it has something to do with reflection. The color black reflects no light. Red, blue, or indigo reflect only partial light. But white... White reflects all the light. You see, if we're going to be a total reflection of him there, shouldn't we be a reflection of him here? The Old Testament book of Numbers reminds us that when Moses went up onto the mountaintop to receive the law of God, spent 40 days in the presence of God, and when he came down off of the mountain, his face glowed. Ha! <laughs> It wasn't anything that he'd created, but it was from being in the presence of the light of the world for those 40 days, his face literally glowed. There was a shine of reflected light from being in the presence of the Father. Now, our our, our faces won't literally shine, but there should be a reflection that comes from us everywhere we go in our 
actions, in our deeds, in our words, in our lives. Because I'm here to tell you, when we deflect the attention from us and when we reflect the light that he is to this world, it is then that they have the best chance of seeing the Father and the Son revealed in us. Be his light. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.